This is Catalog and Cocktails. Presented by Data.World. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Catalog and Cocktails. It's your honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in hand. Brought to you by Data.World. Uh, I'm Tim Gasper, a longtime data, data nerd and product guy, uh, joined by Juan. Hey, hello, everybody. I'm Juan Cicada. I'm the principal scientist here at Data.World. And as always, it is a pleasure to go spend middle of the week, end of the day, go chat about data, have that honest, no BS chat about data. And today I am super excited to go introduce our guest, who is Jane Urban, who is a VP for Global Commercial and Medical Data at Takeda, and who has so much experience in healthcare and pharma data, spent time in consulting. Uh, we're going to have so much fun time uh, in our prep session. I was like, I cannot believe everything that you have done and what you're planning to go do. It's going to be so, much, so, so cool. Jane, how are you doing? Welcome, Jane. I'm, I'm really good. Thank you. Thank you for bringing me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be here and chat with you today. It's going to be fun. Fantastic. So let's kick it off. What are we drinking and what are we toasting for today? Yeah. So I have the Nippon, uh, Japanese cocktail for the a Japanese theme, I suppose, um, which is whiskey, Japanese whiskey, vermouth, and ginger. And I would say I'm toasting... The opportunities of the new year, we're about to hit Lunar New Year actually this weekend. So a happy new year is what I would toast. Nice. Love that. Happy nice. new year. Happy new year. So, so we, I prepared the drink for both of us. It's what I'm going to call a bittersweet vodka soda. So it's, okay. a, vodka, it's a vodka called Great Grateful Vodka. Mm. Uh, and I mix some agave with some bitters in it. That's a sweet nice. and bitter. And just some soda. It's actually pretty good. Yeah. So cheer. And I'm toasting Cheers. that we're in the office. We are all kind of fancy dressed up today because we had our yeah. head. We had our head show. Picture day. Picture day. It picture was day. So yeah. Luckily, I didn't have picture day because I was not as dressed up. But that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny to see everybody in the office. It's just full of people. I guess we came because we're taking our pictures. Uh, yeah. That's why I don't have my T-shirt today. It kind of feels weird to be. Yeah. Like it's this. a little. I've done it a few times, but you're usually in your honest OBS <laughs> shirt. But yeah. Cheers. 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 Great to have you. cheers again. Yes. Cheers. So we got our warm-up question of the day. 18 days in, what New Year's resolution have you stuck to so far? Um, I would say one thing I've been really trying to be good about is I have a one sentence journal that I do in the evening, like just one sentence about the day. And I've actually made it pretty far, I'm a little more than 18 days. I've done it a little bit in the fall as well, but I really like that as a kind of evening practice to write one sentence about your day. That is so. a great idea. That's awesome. I yeah, love it's it. easy to do compared to like a full journal entry or something. So yeah. I oh, like that one. I'll have to consider that, you know, a good yeah. way to like cap the day, right? Yeah, they do make like one sentence journals, so it's a thing. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. How about you, Tim? Um, you know what? I've been doing a good job of keeping up with my Duolingo. I'm trying to nice. up my Spanish, and uh, I'm trying to learn Sweet. Korean. I'm half Korean, but I don't actually know how to speak Korean, so I'm trying to remedy that. <laughs> That's right. very cool. 18 days in, good. 18 days. Actually, a little longer than that, kind of summer to year, right? Yeah. But how about you? What do, you? what do you got going on? So we have something with my wife and I is like, let's make sure we hug for one minute every day oh wow i love that say, you know what we should like sit down and do 10 push-ups together every day and that like three days in we're like hey, we haven't even done it's like yeah it's not gonna happen <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't sound as fun as a hug. So there's that, but it's gonna. I mean, when we when I got a bunch of travel started up soon, so we'll see how that's gonna work. Out. But anyways, that that's that's ours. You could do a virtual hug, like a we'll video. Virtual, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. All right, all right. Let's kick it off. So honest, no BS. What does it really mean to leverage data as an asset, and how is this related to data as a product? Is different. Yeah. So. You know, I, one of my things I say repeatedly in my role is that we have to leverage our data as an asset. And what I mean by that is you have to kind of care for it like you would any other asset, right? So you're, you're doing maintenance on it. You're making sure that it's kept up with the latest, whatever is available for it. Um, you also have an element of value that you place on it and kind of this notion of an asset on a balance sheet, if you will. And I think that is something that has been sometimes missing in the way people think about data. They think about it more like a, a byproduct or in some cases like a necessary evil of doing business. Um, and I've been really trying to, to switch that mindset in Takeda to say that it's truly something of value. And what that compared to product, I think it's a bigger concept, right? The asset being like a larger thing versus a product is typically in my mind anyway, more specific to a problem you're trying to solve for a given customer, just like any other non-data product would be. So it's a little different, a little broader 
Um, I think maybe a little bit easier to adapt than data products, which is something that takes a little bit more maturity, maybe in understanding the value of data. So if you start with it being an asset, at least then it makes sense that you would make products out of your your asset. So mm. hopefully that it's makes not, sense. Okay, this is this is interesting because I actually some talking to people, they kind of use it the other way around. Um, I think everybody, first of all, the data is a product definition or data product is something that is not well-defined stuff, but yeah. let's go into some examples. Sure. Can you give an example of what is an asset and what would be a product and kind of what is the value and how are you defining what value is and measuring it? Sure, sure. So I mean, in pharmaceuticals specifically, I think one of our biggest assets is the data we generate on our clinical trials and the work that we're doing kind of to collect information about how our drugs perform in patient population, both as we're trying to get the approval and then after the products in the market, we're also trying to um, you know measure how it's doing with the real world testing of that product looks like. And so product for most pharma companies is a drug, right? Like the idea of a, of a drug that you're, you're going to, a molecule or a, a compound that you're going to sell. Um, so it's an interesting place to be talking about data as a product as well. And so I think the way you kind of think about data as a product versus an asset versus other terminology is the notion of that kind of problem solving nature, I think has been something that resonates with folks in pharma because we don't make data. We're not a software company. We're not a you know a data company. We're a pharmaceutical company. We make pharmaceuticals. So how do you kind of bridge that mindset around the the um, chemical makeup of a of a molecule being the thing we make? To how do we make data products? Um, so that's where I think we've been trying to really anchor people on the notion of different kinds of solutions that can be using data to solve a problem that a customer has. Right. So. Mm -hmm. That resonates a little more clearly with people when we talk about product ownership of a data, you know, kind of solution. And I try to avoid the word platform because that, in my mind, is a different sort of thing altogether. And so there's a bit of that kind of settling in on the terminology that we, we work on for sure. Yeah. Aligning on those aligning on those terms can make a big yeah. difference to make sure we're all speaking the same language. Um, tell us about value. Like, what does it mean for data to have value or a data asset or a data product to have value. And, and, and to add to that, I think mm -hmm. one of the themes that we're seeing a lot in this year is the whole understanding the business need, making sure that whatever work we're doing is actually providing that value. And that value is like directly related to ROI. Like th this is the theme of 2023. We're looking at yeah. layoffs and looking at everything that's going on. Like if you cannot show how you're, how you're making money, saving money as direct as possible, you're in trouble. So I'm, want to hear this from you. How, how, how are you yeah. producing it? Yeah, I think we do a little of both ends, right? So there's certain places where having um, better data can help us make better decisions. And so that hopefully leads to, a, you know, maybe a higher ROI. So that's one way to look at it. So there's that upside of like more revenue in on the, on the investment and the same investment, for example. Um, I think there's also an element of data helping us to be faster and maybe more efficient so that we're saving, you know, resources, uh, both between kind of using digital and kind of ways of communicating with customers using virtual platforms, for example, rather than physically going and seeing a customer, things like that. So there's an element of data and digital that can save money. So I think we kind of put on, put both levers, but it is definitely a maturity that we're not, at least I think we're, we're still working on figuring out how to truly tie investment in infrastructure and technology and data to you know the bottom line of the business performance it's it's not an easy it's just a lot of steps in between especially when the thing you make is not data um mm -hmm. but i like you know i have to say this more recent story with southwest airlines jumps out to me as an example which i've been using a lot actually around not investing in infrastructure and not putting money toward caring for your your data and your technology can create some pretty catastrophic problems for you. So it does help kind of explain to folks maybe when they wonder like, why does this matter? Why would it, why can't we just stop working on this altogether for say a decade? And then you can kind of see what that might look like. So that helps in some ways to help people understand the downside risk of not doing it is maybe more powerful in this case than investing is right now. But you're right, there's definitely a lot more pressure to justify and to create some value story when it comes to using data and technology and things like that. In in your role and what we've discussed before was like you've started out in, in at Takeda like in a smaller group in the US. Yes. Or in the US and you're growing globally. I mean, 
you have been able to go and then show so much value that you're, that you're now leading the global team for data. So how has that transition been from something smaller to something grow it? And, and again, how, what, are the, what are the lessons that we can be telling people about, this is how you should be showing value here to, to, to your executives? Yeah, I think the first thing is really understanding your um, either your customer or your executive or both, like kind of their problems. So a lot of the conversations I have and the ones I'm having even now in my new kind of more global focused role is to really pick apart what are the big business problems that you're trying to solve? Not specific to data or digital or technology, but just generally speaking, what, what worries you, what keeps you up at night? And those questions, I think, really help hone in on where data, digital, technology, whatever it is, can play a role in, in fixing things, making things better. Um, if it's about making better decisions, faster decisions, more accurate decisions, like anything of that sort of nature, then you can start to talk about where investing in data and investing in, say, speed of data moving around or different kinds of technology like API versus batch or something like that. But it's important you anchor it back to the problem. So. Folks, especially in the executive space who maybe haven't heard of APIs, they don't. They just want to know you can do things better and faster. And so I think if you can emphasize it and tell that story really effectively, that can unlock a lot of the value because people now kind of get it. So I tend to use a lot of metaphors, a lot of stories that are hopefully frameworks that people can then latch onto and say, well, I know what that is. So now, now what you're saying makes more sense to me. So talk a little bit about pipes and water, for example, you know, you're trying to flow the data quickly when I have fewer pipes means it's going to move faster, things like that. Um, I also use a lot of food metaphors. I, uh, I guess that's kind of my interest um, around kind of mise en place or prepping data, right? That concept of how do you get data ready? So that's uh, when you need right. it. It's like ready to go. So right. things like that help people. Let's, I think let's, kind pretty, of let's brainstorm live on these metaphors. I really yes. like a couple, I mean, <laughs> one of our last uh, episodes we did last year was our metaphor was about jumping into the pool. Mm -hmm. And we talk about governance and jumping into the pool. And the governance have, like, person, the lifeguard. And like, you know, you have, then you have like, <laughs> lifeguard, right? Because it's like, yeah. oh, you don't do that. You can, then you have the shallow end, you have the deep end, and we have lanes. So it, was a, it was a really good metaphor, right? That's cool. I so, like that one. So let's go into, I'd love to go do, let's kind of dive into a lot of the metaphors you're using because I think this is the storytelling that people need to be able to go uh, have these elements yeah. be able to explain it because. Mm -hmm. We'll just go back to like, oh, well, we need this API and this platform to do that. And good, good communication around data and the value of data requires us to make it simple and make it relatable. So, yeah, curious about uh, about like if your food metaphor, for example, what's resonated there? How have you articulated that? Yeah, I've got a whole bunch of different <laughs> food metaphors. So mise en place is one. If you're really into food and food prep, that's a good one to talk about. How do you kind of prep your data and clean it up and cut it up into pieces that are more manageable, things like that. That kind of works pretty, that's intuitive. Like I think I, I think of like um, mirepoix, which is like carrots and celery and onion all kind of cut up and put together. Like that's data I can analyze. So that's one way we talk about how to prep data. So you're going from really raw things that don't can't be used in your dish to something that you can use. The other one we talk a lot about in, in the team I just came from, and I'm sure I'll use it in this new team too, is around the, the notion of data governance and data strategy being really helpful if it is like the farm end of data, right? Like what are the things we need to grow to be able to have the data we need to, to make the dishes we wanna make? And so this notion of farmers who are then bringing those raw ingredients to the chefs. But one of the things I've said a few times actually in other forums is the idea that the best sort of way to do this is people who've done analytics, who've, who've used data to actually answer questions. So the chefs, have are better if they've already been a chef when they go back to becoming a farmer. So the idea of former chefs turn farmers, I think makes you a more effective farmer because you know why this particular ingredient is so important and the high quality nature of it is so critical to getting the right answer. So it's kind of that notion of quality and preparedness and planning and hopefully getting ahead of the urgency that you tend to see in a kitchen when you don't have the ingredients you need to make the food you're trying to make is helpful for people to sort of understand why we're putting the investment in up front um, to get better data, to get higher quality data and to monitor it, right? To keep track of it and take care of it and all those kind of metaphorical things, you know, watering your data. People talk about hydrating data. I know that's a metaphor I've heard before too. So yeah. I think the food thing for me is easy to, I can use lots of different pieces of that puzzle to kind of tell the story. Um, and I think most people have some sense of like farm to table or whatever, like they have that idea. So right. it tends to work really well for um, just pulling people in and giving them something they can kind of play with. And then 
when you know you've got it when they start using the metaphor back at you and like trying to come up with different uh, sous chefs and head chefs and whatever like you're like okay we're we're good we're making this happen that, right yeah yeah, yeah. I, another metaphor i've had i worked with uh is thinking about like the manufacturing process right and this is something i chat with right. my buddy Mohammed Osir is uh, you have the the job shop process and then you have like your continuous flow so yes. you're like you have you, you you're going to go develop the 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 Toyota Corolla, right? That's just a very cookie cutter. We know how to go do that. That just goes to flow. Mm -hmm. But then you're going to have like this nice high-end vehicle, mm -hmm. which is just coming out. Like we don't know. We don't have a lot of quantity of these things. Right. It is well, yeah. it is, it, it's going through some innovation. So you have to have something very sp specific uh, approach to that. And guess what? It's not probably not going to have all the sophistication of all the checks and balances you have for the continuous flow, because that stuff needs to just go out and out. Uh, and, and what happens today, I feel, is that a, a lot of we 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 want to be able to kind of well, we have to have all this stack, all these things, all the all, all these data tools, and all these forty different tools. But we're doing something that is probably very innovative. That we just need to move fast on this stuff. Yeah. But for the things that like need to go out without a problem, like we're not investing in it. So we like I think we need to really understand: Are we doing something that's like a continuous flow that just everybody expected to work? Or are we doing something that is kind of really innovative? It needs to be very quick. We don't know what the value is. Let's go test this out. And that's kind of something specialized. And if we, and there needs to be a transition too. It's like the moment we start saying, Hey, this is actually, people are buying this stuff. Like maybe we need to go figure out how to make this process cheaper, faster. Okay. Let's take this job shop manufacturing process and turn into a continuous flow process. So I think that's another analogy. I like, I like that one, especially as you try to transition from like the data science kind of analytical space into something that's maybe more engineered and repeatable. And then you kind of have that nice kind of it flows actually with the way we talk about the roles in the data world. So that, that makes a lot of sense. I, one thing I would, I would tweak on that or like at least add to it is I think one thing I, I try to, I try to make people understand that when we talk about setting up some sort of like process that runs daily or weekly or monthly for like a report that you update every week or something like that, which has that continuous kind of repeatable thing. The one piece that I often find that folks who haven't really worked with data don't understand is that it's data is like very chaos oriented, like it tends to break. So I actually just recently experienced this with one of my teams where they had had a steward to kind of manage their data and they were getting to a point where they had fewer and fewer issues and the steward had like less to do. So they're feeling really good. Okay, we got it. And then they got rid of the steward. <laughs> and within like a few weeks, things started to fall apart and there was a sudden panic. And that's kind of when I heard about it, like, oh, we got rid of our steward because our data was really high quality. We don't need a steward anymore. And that's where I have to remind people that you're just never quite done. Even in those processes that are running really nicely, every so often, you know, there's some weird thing where the week ends on a Thursday and that somehow wasn't, I don't know, we didn't anticipate that. And so now everything's broken. And right. like, that's the things that I think people forget because they haven't lived through enough years maybe of right. data chaos. So keeping in mind that even, even the manufacturing plant, right, it's not completely unstaffed. There's still somebody there just in case something weird happens who can kind of change something or turn it off, fix the thing, turn it back on again, whatever that looks like. So just keeping people aware of the unfortunate never-ending need to kind of care for your processes yeah, um, that, is important yeah, I, too. I feel like that relates to a conversation that we had at DGIQ. Uh, when we had a panel with uh, with Sharon and Anthony, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Shannon and Anthony, and and one of the things that we talked about was the like um, the the fact that it can be really chaotic um, in in this sort of environment, and um, and it's easy sometimes to think of things like governance as like project based and be like, oh, like we've accomplished compliance and we're done, or you know we rolled out our stewardship program and we're done, right? Um, and one of the big things that they pushed on that panel was to really think of governance more like a function, more like, I mean, like HR, for example. Do you ever think right. that like, oh, well, you know, now that we, you we're know. We're done with HR. You know, we are no, we're done <laughs> we have with hired HR. everyone we need. We're never going to hire another person. It's going to be right. totally. Yeah, I think, and I think that's actually, so it's interesting. I, you know, Takeda has, I think, taken a really bold bet here with this function, data, digital, and technology, which, I, you know, I'm part of now. It is meant to be something like HR, like finance, you know, like ethics and compliance, right? These are things that endure. They never really stop doing what they're doing. There's always more that is needed, that's helpful, that creates value. And so as we're trying to reposition sort of data, digital technology, there is a, there is a bit of that trying to raise the awareness that you're never really done with these data. Pro like project is kind of a word we're trying to 
bring you know away from the nomenclature because if you think about building some sort of a process or a, a solution in technology it's always having iterations right there's always going to be right. a new release a new a new a modification of some sort or other so you're never really like done where you can be like put it on a shelf it's complete um and so that's important i think to keep in mind that the the same way finance is never done and hr is never done i mean there are cycles and different sort of parts of the year say but it's always there. And I think that's what DD&T or, you know, data digital technology is, isn't meant to sort of also be um, like that. And I think that's a, an evolution from maybe where we were with IT, where it was kind of project based, like we're going to build a new something and then be done and release it and it's done. Now, I think we're saying, no, this is a never ending kind of uh, adventure that we go on when we try to use these things for, for solving problems. If we, so I agree that this is never done, but we still need to have we start showing progress, start showing value, and it's an iterative. So how, again, I want to continue on, let's keep brainstorming on the metaphors and stuff, but how are we describing, like, this is the value that was done. Like, how are you, how are, how should we be measuring this? And, and every so often you have a cycle and like, what is the outcome? How do you know that you have been solving that problem? And, it's, and, and in particular, the pharma world is, is very unique. So I'd also love to get a perspective kind of from a global, kind of general perspective, but also from the pharma perspective. Yeah, you know, it, it does. It, it varies. Like, it depends a lot on what you're talking about and what you're doing. Um, some examples that spring to mind for me, though, I think we've done a few projects over the years where we've added new insights or new data to, you know, whether it's a dashboard or report or we've sent out some kind of new data, you know, based information to our teams, especially in the field, for example. Um, I distinctly remember this was probably like 2016, 2017. We released a new... Um, list of, of uh, physicians targeted and kind of like ranked by how um, how engaged they are with the same therapeutic area, how many patients they have that they're you know treating, things like that. And that information was was helpful to our field teams to know kind of who to talk to and why to talk to them, and a little bit more about you know kind of what was going on in those clinicians' practices. And so that kind of insight from data. We happened to kind of put the date when we entered, you know, we, we kind of released this new information to the field into one of our uh, forecasting models. Like we just added it as like a point in time in the forecast. And after we built out the whole full forecast for the, the year and looked back at that moment in time, there was an actual like pivot in the sales of the product as a, like within a few days of when that you know new information had been released and other things were happening at other times, but that was really closely aligned to that updated information. And so we ultimately had to conclude that like by giving the field people better data with, you know, better ability to talk to the right people at the right time, we did better, you know, as a company, it was a kind of an, it's a rare moment that you get that lucky that you just happen to put it into a model and it shows up as being a really strong driver of a, a little, you know, a little bit of a, a unusual situation in our sales. And it was, it couldn't be correlated to anything else that was going on. And so it was really exciting because for me, that was the story I needed to say, look, when we have better information, we make better decisions and we do better as a company. So those are like some ways we get a little bit lucky, I suppose, rather than, than necessarily planning for it. But that helped us, I think, as, a, as an analytics team to really start to change the opinion of what data can bring to the team. So that was, for me, was a really cool moment and probably gained me a little bit of room to sort of take some other risk and do some other things because people were like, well, you know, that was really helpful. Um, so that's part of it, I think, too, is having that ability to notice the impact that you're making and measure it when you can. Um, and we were measuring overall all the different tactical things we were doing, right? So we, at the time, we were doing you know, different kinds of live interactions. We also had like uh, TV ads. We had you know, stuff on the web, right? banner ads and digital advertising and things like that. And it was pretty clear that this was something that actually drove some of the ROI. The other thing was that the data and digital stuff was a lot cheaper to do. <laughs> that also helps, right? So you can say like you're for every dollar you're putting into these things, you're getting a lot more dollars back because they're not as expensive. So it does, I think those kinds of things can really help tell that story and put it with numbers behind it rather than just because it's cool or because everybody else is doing it, which is a reason, but it may not be as compelling as like, because it helps us to do better from a revenue perspective, which is usually pretty compelling. So that was one of my earlier wins that I think bought me a lot of space to continue to build and, and grow because it was pretty yeah. legit. So. Collecting those outcomes and those accomplishments yeah. end up being a key way to advocate for the team and show the value, right? 
Um, and I, one thing that I think is interesting, so I kind of want to tie this outcomes conversation back to the beginning when we started to talk about like assets and data products. Yes. Like, are you, are you finding that through your organization and in general that like, where is the value creating activity? Is it happening in the taking the data chaos and, and, and identifying and managing the data assets? Is it happening in data assets to data products? Is it totally unrelated to sort of that? It's a sort of second plane on this. Curious on your thoughts on this. Yeah, you know, I think that there's a little bit of value in each step. Um, it's hard to break that down. Like, so for that example, right, that's that's a, an investment of, in the case of our space, we actually have a lot of data in pharmaceuticals. So we have prescription data, we have claims data, we have all these different sources for activities that hospitals and medical practices do. So we pay a bunch of money for that. So there's an element of investment in that data. And then there's work to clean it up, to, to you know filter it, to get the right diagnosis codes or whatever, to be able to do the analysis you want to do. And then there's the element of how you serve it up and where you put it and how you show it to people so that they can take action on it. So each of those, I would say like food, right? You have like, you have to pick it out of the ground, you have to clean it up, you have to chop it up, you have to kind of serve it up and put it on a plate with a little garnish or all those steps have some value to them. It's hard. I would say, at least from what I've seen so far, it's kind of difficult to break it down um, by like each of those steps and sort of say, here's the relative value of each step because they're all kind of needed to get to the end. Like, you know, you, the dish wouldn't work if you didn't do all those things. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah. I, but I do think you can start to see how much you're spending. So at least you have the I and the ROI pretty clearly. So if you look at kind of how many people does it take to clean up the data? How many people does it do the analytics work? You know, you can kind of, and how much does the data itself cost? You can start to sort of see the relative investment and then you can kind of say, well, if this is the full return and the full investment, I have a sense and then I know kind of as a percentage what I spent. So there's some places you can kind of look at that. But I would say that, you know, each of those components is really important, right? Being able to clean it up, being able to serve it up, all those things are what get you to the actual outcome you're looking for, which is hopefully better experience or more revenue or whatever the right. measure is. Which which goes back mm -hmm. to something you added early when we started off saying, hey, asset data is an asset asset is you know is larger than a product it's something you care for it has value and it's on a balance yeah. sheet so yes. technically you should be able to say that this asset that i have here costs x and i can i can tell you how where that x came from and calculate the the, the, the time the people are, the, the, yeah the, the, yeah so that i mean i think that's what you think about it in like a profit and loss kind of measurement sheet right it's it's a liability in some cases depending on how you look at it but it's also an asset right because it's creating value over time which is i think you try to think about that. Do you actually have data assets on your balance sheet? Um, you know, we don't have it in that exact financial treatment, but we do have the cost of what we're spending on data in our in our like you know our measurement of how our analytics team is spending and what they're doing. So it's not quite, I won't say it's quite like that, but it is an interesting thing to play around with. I think over time as we get more mature, I would see yeah. the possibility of especially if you end up building something that somehow has value in its own right. I mean, I think one of the things that's happening in the healthcare space that's an emerging trend is the notion of digital healthcare products. So actual, whether it's sensors or algorithms that help predict disease outcomes, right? Like if there's something where you put in some lab results and some family history and a bunch of other inputs, you can decide kind of from that calculation, what's the risk of disease progression, for example, like those are data products that actually create value for patients. And you could, in theory, get them perhaps approved through some sort of regulatory body and reimbursed by your insurance company and things like that. So there's not as much of this in the US. It's still kind of emerging. I know we have some examples that we're working on in China and Japan. So different countries are in different places with this. But there is this notion, I think, that eventually we will use digital healthcare. This solution. is So that's pretty exciting, right? That this idea. super exciting because now you're saying like there is this product that we're being used that can actually be charged to insurance companies. So they have to go pay for it. And this product yeah. is literally all based on data that was done. That So I think that's you have that external factor, which is making you kind of for, it's forcing yeah. you to put a price on this stuff. Yes, I think that's uh, what's going to change the way that, that data, digital technology cool. kind of sits in the organization because before it was sort of back office, byproduct, whatever you want to call it. And now we're thinking of it actually as a potential revenue generator in its own right. Now, this is early days. 
Yeah, sure, it'll take some time, but I think we're heading in that direction because think about the amount of data you collect in your like Apple Watch, right? There's so much happening. We're learning so much about how you have a continuous monitoring of your heart rate while you're sleeping, while you're awake, all these things. Slowly, I think we're going to figure out how to tap into all of it. Right now, we're not really using all that data, right? It's just kind of sitting in an app, but eventually that's going to become a way that we can really measure how people's health is improving or not. And, and hopefully, you know, Apple's trying down this path for sure. And others are, are also looking at, it. I think the first place is really going to be more with like diagnostics and things like that, where you're saying between this picture, maybe of a, you know, some kind of a image of someone's body, plus some other information, maybe a lab result, whatever, we can start to build models and algorithms. You look at what chat GPT is doing, right? With, with um, different inputs. I think there are now a version of that with imaging, for example. So Slowly, there's going to be a pretty bigger, I think there's a, a trend, I would say, in a macro sense toward digital health as a, a product that becomes, you know, reimbursable in its own right from just a, a drug molecule. So it's, it's kind of exciting times for DD&T in the healthcare space, for sure. Yeah. And, oh, that's cool. One of the things, because of well, my, the, my 2023 prediction is that more than a prediction, it's like an ask for the data communities, like start talking directly about ROI. You need to be like, this is what you need yeah. to do, do. And I, I've already been seeing some kind of conversations going on. People are like, yeah, you know what? What my answer is data monetization. And then they're going to go jump all the way, like to the further extreme saying, oh, we're going to go sell our data. And then they're just going to go off and not be, I mean, they're not even, we're not even economists in this stuff. We're just about <laughs> so I think we're jumping here, but you've described like so many different things in the middle. I mean, eventually, if it, this is an asset and I don't know, here's a, a table of data can do a lot of that stuff. I could go sell that. And people are doing that, right? There's this yeah. like, data marketplace and stuff like that. But it doesn't mean that all your data, like that's the only way to show all That's not the here. only way to, to prove value, value from the data no, no, and, and, and turn that liability into, in, into an asset. It, like That's not the only way. No. So there no, is, there's a lot of different pathways. Yeah, there's mm -hmm. so much, yeah. but I think we're just starting to go scratch the surface on this. And, and this conversation has just opened my mind. It's like, oh, wow. We got to start thinking about coming. And I think the definition of the asset with the product, the solution, you start thinking about the solution. So you're selling that solution, which by the way, uses a lot of the data for the product in there. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Right. So, well, I think you look at some of the really tech companies, they're that there is a nice sort of flywheel effect where they're not only selling a product that has data used to create it, but it itself is collecting more data, which then helps them figure out what the next product should be. And so you end up actually using the data product to make more data products. So it's, we're not quite there yet in healthcare, I don't think, but certainly in, in some places that's well on its way to becoming a, right. a thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, just before we, we get to our next question, I want to say that uh, this episode was brought to you by Data.World, the data catalog for the data mesh. It's a whole new paradigm for data empowerment. Learn more at Data.World. Um, and the next question that I want to ask you, Jane, is around, so, you know, the pharma space is not necessarily known for being super fast and super agile, right? It's, it has a process and that process can take a long time and, you know, and, and all aspects of the business get pulled into that. Um, so how do you deal with trying to be agile in that environment? And how do you, you know, bring a data product or data value, you know, to, you know, to fruition fast, you know, is there a culture clash that you have to deal with? Yeah. I mean, I think, the, my One of the things I joke about is if you have like a bullet train of innovative companies and you've got Google and Amazon and Apple and these companies at the front of the train, pharma is not even on the train. We're like in one of those little push cart things that you're like pumping up and down trying to keep up with the back end of the train. Like we are just not the innovative. So I will say though, I just saw a chart the other day. But with like billions was, of dollars in that. Thing. Right. Like, God, you know, um, but I think it was Gartner that the one maybe glimmer of hope for us, which is a sad one, is that. One of the places that's actually behind pharma is the automotive industry because they've really kind of been resistant to using data. I mean, you think about Tesla as like an outlier, but for the most part, the automotive, it's all right decentralized. You have all these little franchise auto companies that sell you your car. I mean, that model is really tough with, from a data collection perspective. And yeah. I still get emails from many dealers ago trying to see if I want to buy a car, right? So um, I think there's there's hope for us. We're not the absolute slowest to grow. Although if you get somebody on here who's in the automotive industry and they come after me, I apologize in advance. But um, <laughs> but no, I think I think where healthcare is right now, it's it's definitely a lot of talk. I think there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of of disruption happening. Certainly, Takeda is no exception here. We're trying to build and kind of get rid of the IT notion and move more toward using data. 
um, and digital and technology together to create value. I mean, it's like a much more, the talking points are much closer to where a lot of companies have been for years. So that's a good sign. But there is a reality of the products that we make, the drugs that we make are decades in the making. They're not fast moving things. It's, it is really unprecedented when you think about the way that the COVID vaccines were accelerated through the regulatory process. However, people forget that Moderna, Pfizer, those guys have been making that kind of vaccine platform for a decade. It's not, they didn't just sort of like turn it on on you know, March of 2020. No. So I think even that, as, as impressive as the regulatory process ended up being to get the approvals, it still was many years prior to the actual approval process that allowed for them to move as quickly as they did. So, yeah, I think that's the context in which we operate is that we're releasing new products in years, not months or weeks or even days. So that has a, a bit of a backdrop to how we think about the timescale of what we're doing. However, I think we have opportunity to have iterative, like smaller impact faster, right? Because the regulatory pieces for um, the medical device space are a little different from, say, the you know, ethical molecule space. There's other ways we can help patients without it being regulatorily reviewed and approved. Certainly things like these different algorithms that can help patients to um, better understand what their disease looks like and how it's progressing. Um, we also, I think, have a really cool opportunity when we partner with different patient advocacy groups and help them better understand their patient population. So there's there's other ways that we can help using data faster than just developing a net new molecule to, to solve a, a medical problem. And that's, I think, where we want to play in terms of how we get better kind of impact, better traction, better value with the data we have. Um, and that can be done in more of a, you know, weeks to months sort of timescale rather than years. Um, but it is moving from waterfall types of development projects to agile is slow. And certainly I think the hardest part is if it's not done with a critical mass of people, it's really tough for those who are trying to do it, right? So if you have two or three people who are trying to work in an agile way and they have their stand-ups and their ceremonies and they're doing their thing, and then they're asked to do the rest of their job in kind of the not agile way, they, they struggle. And so we see that happening with people who try to bring agile to a team and, and then the rest of the organization is still not there yet. It's, it's a tough haul. And so there's, there's no surprise that a lot of the data and technology folks turn over quickly. I mean, that's been the kind of the pattern. Chief data officers don't last very long. Um, and some of that is when you're trying to embed in a company that's never done anything in that way it's you know if it's not a software company for example then you do have that i think uphill battle um the middle ground for me though has been starting smaller and trying to solve smaller problems first and then showing that value and showing that you can fix something and make something easier for someone and having that kind of like quick win because the classic consultant speak but if you can do some of those things and show people that their data can be useful to them in a way that they hadn't thought of before you get more and more kind of leeway to start solving bigger and bigger problems. And then you can kind of move things forward. But it's not, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people who join healthcare from outside of healthcare are very frustrated at first. It's like you land in sort of like molasses and you're trying to run and you just can't quite make as much progress as you'd like to make um, compared to other, other spaces where the turnaround and product development is much faster. Sounds like you have to, th you have to think about and plan your approach pick your battles and yes. really find out where the 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 quick wins or the easier wins are, are possible and and uh and and save the longer term battles for the longer term because it might be a while yeah the other thing i think is you have advocates and people who are excited i was i kind of tend to be very people oriented so mm -hmm. are there people who are kind of geeky in their own right and they like this stuff and they're willing to dialogue with you and engage with you because those are the folks you can start with to see if there's something you can do to help them and then help you know get them kind of excited, and then they can bring more, more people to the party. Um, and that doesn't always necessarily mean it's the most like impactful or the highest value right out the gate. But it's about getting something to work and to stick, and to have people willing to go along on that journey with you. Because to me, the behaviors of the people tend to be the thing that slow down technological innovation much more so than the technology. Like writing the code is not usually the problem. It's usually yeah. people being resistant to change not wanting new process to come into their world or maybe just afraid because they don't know and they don't like to be kind of in a place where they're uncomfortable and they don't know. So it's really orienting toward how are the people feeling who are going to have to deal with this change, maybe more so than the tech and the platform. Yeah, so probably unusual that way because I don't, 
not a tech person, I'm a people person uh, when it comes to these things. But I think that that's what is missing more in kind of in the data, the data world is that it's not just about the tech, it's about the people and the process and what you're exactly saying. I mean, one of our one of our buddies here, uh, Stuart Kerber, I love what he's saying, is like, you got to find those crazy bunch, those astronauts, right? Yes. Like, right. You think back in the 1950s, people were like, yes, I want to go to the moon. It was like, no, people were like, yes, want to go to the moon. Like, you want to go yeah. find those crazy people says so like, yes, I want to go to the moon. And those are the folks that are, that are going to be your, your, your allies and be the evangelists yeah. who are going to be supporting and cheerleading and you, and you get that trust with them. And help you break the mold. Yeah. Right. Exactly. From, from a, from a leadership and executive kind of uh, uh, in the pharma space, are they, how is this evolving? Because you can't always just be the slow little <laughs> in the back, right? Like, yeah, no, I, I think, I think we're, it's a, a bit, well, I think this is probably true across the board, right? This is not unique to pharma that a lot of the executive layer is starting to really try to figure this out and embrace it. And that we're no exception. I think our, our CEO, Christoph Weber has been very vocal. He was actually at JP Morgan and mentioned data digital technology as one of his priorities and kind of becoming a digital biopharmaceutical company is one of his priorities. So clearly for, for Takeda, there's this great, and that's a boost for us, right? Because you have voice from the top saying this is important and we want to invest in this and we want to make it happen. Um, I do think though that there's a natural kind of, you know, fear of the unknown or fear of looking like you don't know what you're talking about that we have to navigate. And so a big part of managing our executive team is to help them have that safe space to ask those unquote kind of dumb questions so that we can get them comfortable. So I think early days with some of the work I did in the US, it was about just, you know, getting a whiteboard and, and kind of drawing a picture of how this stuff works and letting all those questions come out and like why and how and you know all that so that you can get people feeling like they kind of have they're dangerous, right? They know enough to be able to kind of speak to infrastructure mm -hmm. with data. And even just the idea of like batch versus API, you can explain that pretty simply enough. And then people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we should run it in an API, you know, so you, and then people feel good. And the metaphor is also too, but I think sometimes for people, they want to know, like, unpack this jargon for me so I understand it a little better so that I can kind of feel comfortable when the techie people come and talk at me so I don't like feel lost. I think that's part of the journey we're going on across the board because there's a whole generation of folks who are not digital native who are still trying to lead. Um, and then the digital native generation is kind of coming in and that's, it's a clash, right? It's a little bit of a tension between folks for whom this is super intuitive and they know exactly what to do without any instruction to people who are struggling a bit with how to use those, those different new kind of technology. I mean, look at the way we all had to figure out Zoom and Teams and, you know, Slack and all these things to be able to communicate with each other during the pandemic for for some folks, that was a really tough transition and they struggled. And so that's the same group that's going to struggle with, moving toward a digital future, whatever that looks like. And, and one of the things that kind of in this growth, uh, you, you were in this position of starting kind of building the data team in the U.S. and going globally. I would love for you to come in. I mean, time flies. we got to wrap up soon here. Yeah. But is, share us like your lessons learned, the good, bad, and the ugly of having these teams starting small and growing to a global level. Because this is, I mean, people are like, I have a big team, but yeah, it's just, you have a a handful of people like eh, this is a different scale this like you're going through an amazing scale of growth of, of the data globally please share us the good the bad and the <laughs> you know I, you know i look back and, and there's some things are, are you know like i said better to be lucky than good so i will say some context around the first bill that i did back in 2016 2017 was for a drug called intivio which has become a blockbuster meaning it has more than a billion in revenue it's a huge huge asset for us as a as a drug and at the time it was growing incredibly fast, but it was still very small and there was a lot of infrastructure to build out. So some of this would have happened despite me, right? So I don't want to make it seem like it's all on me that I grew these teams up because of the nature of the business. That said, I do think starting with the problems, the biggest problems, the hardest problems, especially the hardest ones, like really understanding what those are and, and starting to frame up like, what's it gonna take to solve those hard, hard problems? And how long do we think it'll take? You know, in some cases it might be a year or more to really wrangle it to the ground. And so one of the things I did early on was to get a kind of a, a scale and a scope of what all is going wrong and then look for a, a mix. Honestly, at the extremes was probably the best things to tackle. The things that are gonna take the absolute longest are gonna be the hardest. You gotta start on those because that's gonna take the longest time. And so if you don't get started, you'll never get it moving. And then maybe there's a few things that you can do with the remaining capacity you have. Let's say you have half your time spent on that big, hairy, 
audacious program, you know, you have to do. The other half is about things that are quicker so that you can start to showcase that like, this is going to work. Trust me, trust this process, trust this team. And then ideally what you're doing then is creating demand for the services you can render. So people want more resources to go your way. Um, so that's one thing I think I definitely learned by just having that mix. So you can't go all in on the long-term stuff and not show anything. And if you only do quick things and you never start the long things a year in, you've solved a bunch of little problems, but there's nothing you know meaningful there. And people start to wonder like, what are, you know, you've been here all year and you haven't solved this big problem at all. Like what's going to happen. So if you can do that mix, I think that's one thing to think about it, but you have to know the list, right? You have to start with the list is that's, what are all the things of, um, does that help? I don't know. If that <laughs> yeah, that does. You know, and so my background is in product management, right? And this actually reminds me of good product management where yeah. if only you focus on the big rocks and the big strategic things, then, you don't see progress until six months from now or 12 months from now and things like that, right? I mean, yes, you can prototypes and MVPs and things like that, but it's just, it's bigger, it's more ambitious. But then there's the small wins that you can get along the way that can have a big impact. They're visible, you can evangelize them. And, and there's a smart mix that you have to do uh, in yeah. order to really show the value in an ongoing way that's optimal. Um, yeah, and it's, it always depends a little bit on the situation, but I think if you can do a little of that kind of like big tent pole project that's gonna raise everybody's spirits and hope in the long run, and then a few, littler things that, you know, make a difference in the short run, even if it is just helping answer a really specific question that someone has, you know, I, I find that sometimes can make this really cool moment happen for someone. And they're like, I like you, we can, yeah. we can trust you, you know, like it, <laughs> it could be something small. Um, but that can help, I think, you know, to get people to, to, cause they're buying essentially you in the beginning until you have anything to show for yourself. Right. So that's that's a big, I think, takeaway is just making sure you're thinking about it in that context because you're that's where you, that's where you are at that point in the early. The honeymoon world. period only lasts so long. Right. So you got to come up with something. something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's cool. You know, I'm being... still kind of in it because I'm three months into this role, so I'm like, what else can I? Come oh, up nice. With? You're like, you're like, okay, yeah. my honeymoon eventually going to here. Oh yes, no, that's totally. funny. Uh, hey, being a data leader uh, is is complicated. We've got, we've got well, I mean, it's, it's the chaos, right? I mean, I think that's what it is. You're leading something that's naturally chaotic. But I, one of the things I always reassure my teams is we have so much job security. Like this is not going away. <laughs> so don't stress. Like you're always going to have more problems yeah. to solve. You'll never run you, out. So don't worry. You all are important, and yes. data really yes. drives value. Yes. And it's especially when we can articulate that value. Totally. Totally. Well, th this has been a fantastic conversation. I have yeah. in our takeaways, I'm going to highlight a couple, couple of the big nuggets that we've had here, but let's move on to our lightning round, which is uh, presented ah. by data.world. So we got four questions, yes or no answers, or can give some context. Um, I'll kick it off first. So is an approach and focus to developing data assets more important than developing data products? Man, that's a tough one. You know, I think you have to have, in my mind, the way my framework works, you have to have assets to be able to create the products. So yes, I think you have to start with assets and make sure you have what you need, the raw ingredients, you know, I, in I, order to create the dishes. So, I, I like how yeah. about this. The assets are these raw ingredients. You're going to go to build a bunch of stuff with it. And I think this is how we can start framing it. Uh, um, yeah. The products... The products need to be tied to some particular like business out business outcome that at the end is either going to save money and or make money. One of those two things. One of those two things. Yes, totally. I think that's interesting advice. There's more to unpack there in the future because I think people are so excited about data products and they're just like, how do I jump to data products? Yeah. And, like, and I worry that it's overused though. I think it's almost like people are using that as a crutch for whatever they're doing. Like, oh, it's a product, so I have to. It's going to be better because it's product, and it's like you're still just using software or something like yeah, it's just not I mean, as different could, as, you, as you thought we it was have, we need to, we, then we can spend multiple episodes on just on his no bs give me your definition of a data product and we'll go yeah. all over the place so. maybe that's yeah. right. oh, we, yeah. we, we did a sequence of just asking people like one minute rant on data mesh you know we could we're gonna work through a similar <laughs> yeah, that's actually product. probably a good idea <laughs> you i mean data mesh has a similar right people say well isn't that just data governance or isn't that you know it's like something else right? well, i think data product the answer is no 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 you don't understand it right <laughs> Go we'll read, we'll read, read all these blog posts and all these things, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right, here we go. Next yeah. question. All right, all right. Next okay. question. All right. So, is it the responsibility of a data leader to prove their data team's value? Yeah, I think so. I think that's part of the role as the leader. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, the team has to do things too, but I think the leader is the one who's going to help be that mouthpiece. That's why I'm talking about. I'm the cheering squad for my team. Um, and it's and the storyteller, which is where the value becomes clear to the end user. So yeah, I think that's a part of the role. 
Um, and it's necessary because often the folks who are really working in the weeds on the details and making things happen, they, they don't want anything to do with talking about what they're doing. And so they would much prefer somebody else do that sort of value proposition yeah. and story. So yeah, I think so. I think that's a part of it. That's And that's a different skill, which is why it's really tricky for folks when they've been so good at doing data science or data engineering or whatever technical thing to transition into leading a team because it's a totally different thing they need to do to be successful in that role. So that probably speaks to why sometimes new data leaders struggle because they need to do something very different, right? They're not a super programmer. They're they're a storyteller, which is a different right. skill. Yeah, That's a really good there's observation. There's also good conversations I've been having and just reading a lot about data leaders. Should they have a technical background or maybe they shouldn't have a technical background or, or, or that's not their primary background. yeah that's another one i think that's an interesting i don't think there's a right or wrong there but you know in my mind i like that i have some experience doing some of the tedious things because it gives me that context so like having programmed a little bit early days in sas and sql and using data to answer questions myself i think gives me some more confidence that what i'm asking somebody to do is either awesome or really hard or it's going to be terrible you know like you have a sense of what you're you're signing someone else up for and you have that credibility i, I like your I, food analogy when you said that like the chefs made the best yeah you harder, right because right? you do i think you need to have some chef experience some in the kitchen like you know really in the trench kind of experience to be really but you don't need to i mean i've seen some really great data leaders right. who are much more about the storytelling and the you tell me what I need to know, and then I'll make it sing. Kind it of, I'll, I'll be an interesting episode about. Let's have one. I think so too. About just technical background and non-technical background. All right. This, gotta, this reminds me of an episode that we had a while ago, like a long time ago, of like different types of CDOs. They have different styles. Yeah. yeah. We had that with Muhammad yeah. Osir, who was about like, oh, are you the entrepreneur one? Are you the one about protection or like, all that stuff? I think that, that's a good one. About yeah. Well, yeah, talk about really people. Next question is, is okay. the people aspect of data the biggest missing piece? I think so. That's an easy yes, you know, for me. Um, I was I'm hoping you were saying yes because that's the one we need to emphasize most. <laughs> exactly. That'd be weird if I was like, nah, people don't really matter that much. Actually, no, yeah, I, think, yeah. I think to me is one of the, I, I feel like it's one of the things I have found myself having to remind people the most is like, and, and it, it comes with the phrase that I often say to our really techie folks, which is you have to finish your homework before you go and play video games. And what I mean by that is you, you have to fix the things that people, you know, the important basic stuff that people really want to get done is going to have to get out of the way before anyone will be interested in your like video game, cool technical thing that you want to do. And that's really hard when people, but this, but this video game though, it's so cool. And you're like, I love it. I, I get it. It's I actually need, you know, finance. The useful. Yeah. And sometimes they come together, right? But yeah. sometimes. They don't. And so you just have to make sure that there's enough of that emphasis. And I think that's a bit of the the struggle that really people who are very tech. I mean, I'm, I love technology, too. But I think if you if you let that kind of take over, you run the risk of a lot of cool stuff, but it's not tied to the goals of the business or the problems right. that are causing problems. And then how do you justify it? Eventually, someone's going to catch up and be like, why do we have all of these oculuses? Like, what are we doing? You know, so yeah. you I can't have a healthy body if you're only eating candy. Exactly. It's why you can't have dessert all the time. Same idea. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> totally. All right. Last question. All right. Jim. Last question. This one's actually a little more just industry specific. So, you know, is pharma industry experience or let me be more specific. Is pharma industry expertise critical to pharma data work? That's a good one. Um, I don't, I guess I would say if I had to pick yes, no, I would say no. I think you can teach people a lot. Um, I think it's important that people get that context. And we've had to do a lot of that work with, you know, giving people some kind of onboarding of what is a pharmaceutical company and some of the terminology, of course, all the acronyms, all that kind of stuff. But my hunch is that's the same anytime you cross industries and consultants do that all the time, right? If you look at the big consulting firms, they oscillate across industries and, and they, they can figure it out. So I think you can teach a lot of this. I think people don't always like that's kind of controversial because I think there is a bit of how can this person lead if they haven't run a pharmaceutical team before kind of stuff. But, right. you know, I've seen people coming in from very different spaces and doing quite well in the data, you know, in the data world, because the data part is really a skill that is important and knowing best practice and how to you know, document your code or how to put together your different kinds of catalogs like you guys manage, like it's helpful if you have a general sort of, there is a right-er way to do things and a wrong-er way. There's not like one right way, but I think it's helpful if you have a background. So we've hired some folks from Amazon 
Um, we've had people come from, you know, agriculture, people from other industries that are not at all healthcare specific, and they've done quite well. So I think I think you can teach that part of it if, if that's what you're looking for. And you can get people who've done some pretty innovative things, again, with the whole train at the back end thing. If you can find some people from an Amazon or Google or Apple or something that come, um, we just got somebody from Meta, and that's been really interesting to hear their horror yeah. stories of being in Meta. So there is something there too, I think, for us that helps um, that benefits us if we bring some yeah. inside, some outside in thinking for sure. So yeah, the outside in thinking, and uh, and if you had to choose between, you know, somebody who's great at data um, and you know not so much at pharma versus great at pharma and not so much at data, the when you're working with the the, the former, you can yeah. you can teach proficiency in the pharma. Right. No, I, I will say I've seen people make a pivot in their career and had people come to me and say, I love this data stuff. It's something I'm really passionate about. Mm -hmm. I was a sales rep or I was in kind of a totally different department at, at a pharma company and I want to make the pivot. And it can be done. So it's not that you couldn't do it, but I think that's a different sort of journey that you're going on. And you probably won't immediately jump in and start writing code. I mean, obviously that's like literally having to learn another language. So I think you can do both, but I, I do find, I find myself more biased toward actually looking for the, the data skills over the industry experience. Mm -hmm. Well, we have gone through so much and hey, it's TTT. Tim, take us away with takeaways. Time take for some off. takeaways. So uh, <laughs> amazing conversation. Um, I think we started off especially around this idea of data assets versus data products uh, and the importance of treating your data or thinking of your data as an asset and that being pretty fundamental on the journey towards data products. And I think that's an, an interesting perspective because people tend to use these words in, in all sorts of different ways. I feel like it makes a lot of sense to me to think of this as kind of a funnel. And I, I've really latched onto your use of the word chaos. There's like the data chaos, <laughs> that's like the top of the funnel. Yes, and then the data assets, assets, and then the data products, and then you know, uh, there's data value all along the way. Um, and I think that's a really great way to think of it. And you, you mentioned this idea of like, you know, you want to care for your data assets. You want to uh, really think about the data value and think of it like almost like a balance sheet, maybe not literally a balance sheet, because a lot of companies aren't necessarily literally putting their data on, you know, as liabilities on the balance sheet. But if you think that way, then that really gets you to think about it in the right way. Um, assets are larger than a product. Um, and in general, you also mentioned some of the the, the, the um, terminology in pharma that like, you know, in pharma, our product is usually a drug. So that that actually adds some interesting dynamics about the words that we choose and how we talk about uh, these different things within data. Uh, and when you talked about what is data value, you mentioned it's better data, better decisions, more accurate decisions, and then higher ROI that's coming from, from those data um, assets and data products. Um, you know, that can result in, you know, being faster, being more efficient, saving resources, both the data side and the digital side can have a big impact on this, you mentioned. Um, and you really have to focus on the problems, the problems that you're solving, and that really connects to the data value. So talk to the executives, talk to the key people in the organization, ask them what keeps them up at night, what makes them worried. Um, and use stories, use anecdotes to make it so that you can have a common language to talk about their data problems and talk about how data can solve their problems. And, you know, if it helps to talk about pipes and water, if it helps to talk about food and metaphor, food metaphors like mirepoix and things like that, if it helps to talk about supply chains, like do use what helps you have a productive conversation. And these metaphors, I think you mentioned several of them, food being a favorite um, as being really powerful and helpful to do that. Um, and before I hand it to Juan, you also mentioned that data governance, data management, it's never done. Uh, you kind of agree that, hey, it's a function. Don't, don't think of it in terms of projects. Think of, it, think of it more in terms of like programs and processes. Amazing stuff. So much more. But Juan, what about you? Well, so for me, one of the top uh, kind of nuggets here was collect the outcomes. So I, I always say like the talk about data catalogs, about cataloging data. And I always like I this is about more about cataloging data, it's about cataloging data and knowledge. Uh -huh. And the knowledge also is like, what are the decisions that are being made? What are the outcomes from those decisions? And you want to go basically trace it all back and saying, hey, the, uh, uh, generate these case studies, how we're actually improving. And then at the end, you may find some correlation saying, hey, this outcome and it's correlated with this data work. You see some correlation. Then from a qualitative point of view, maybe you can actually point to that. It was actually that causation right there. And once you do that, this is my interpretation. It's like you start generating that trust. You mm -hmm. gain that ability. 
And then actually you have the availability now to take some risks. It's almost it's like an extreme in lineage one. I think that's kind of what it's like. You take lineage even further forward than just like a report, but all the way to like, what did it, what did you do with it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like that. Business lineage here. That was, a, yeah. that was a big aha moment for me here. And we talk about what are the connections between like the data assets and the data product, data values. This other big, great nugget is like, it's not just about like, oh, we're going to go sell the data. It is, no, we're generating these products, which are these services that happens to be all filled with data. And at the end, like in this particular space, like there's some other forcing function, which is actually, again, forcing you. In your case, it's an insurance that you need to go pay for this. You're going to go pay for it. You need to put a price on that stuff. And I think there's like this trend that it doesn't have to be always just kind of the regulatory point of view. Um, and I think when talking about the pharma industry itself is like, yeah, pharma is slow, but hey, automotive is a little bit slower than that. So <laughs> that wouldn't be that bad. Um, how to start is you need a critical mass of people to go start with. Start small, show value, quick wins. Who are those early evangelists, those champions? I think that's something we constantly hear, but that's something we really need to focus on and, and help others feel comfortable with that conversation about tech. Uh, on, on scaling teams, uh, start with the problems understand, make a list of them, understand what are the hardest problems. And another great nugget for me was have this entire kind of spectrum of really hard problems and really easy problems and start the extreme. You need to tackle the hard problems because you know those are going to take a while, but you also want to tackle the easy problems because you want to show some value quickly. If you only focus on easy problems, you're going to show quick wins, but not show the big picture. If you only show, select the hard problems, it's going to take a while. You're not going to show value. People are going to be questioning what you're doing. And then finally, uh, finish your homework before you can do play video games. How did we do? Anything that we missed on takeaways? No, I thought that was fabulous. It's really made me sound kind of smart. Thanks. <laughs> You're repeating what yeah. you said here. That was all you. That was all you. No, I all appreciate right. it. That's really cool. So throw it back to you. Three things, three yes. questions. What's your advice about data, about life, whatever? Open question. Second, who should we invite next? And third, what are the resources that you follow? People, blogs, conferences, books, so forth. Sure. Okay. Um, so I think one of my my advice probably is not surprising. It's, it's about starting with the people even though you're in a data space. Um, and one thing I, I think is really important as a leader in data is that you, you I call it, especially with my picture with my thing here, you set the weather as a leader. So you kind of decide the energy level, the optimism, the way that everyone's going to going to feel. And so keep in mind how you show up, the energy you bring, the, you know, the way you engage is going to, to really be part of how you succeed or fail. I think sometimes people forget that their own energy as a leader is what sort of starts to generate momentum for the team. So I'm often relentlessly positive, even when I'm a little unsure we're going to figure it out. I'm like, we're doing it. This is happening. And, and it tends to work out that way. So that's one thing I would say I've found to be very helpful over the years. Um, in terms of the next person, I think you should bring on. I'm a huge, huge fan of Israel Abraham. He's over at Mass Mutual. I interviewed him actually recently as part of a data program I was in Massachusetts doing, and he has built this incredible juggernaut of a data infrastructure at MassMutual, and um, he's just a lovely, wonderful human being as well. So I would recommend him highly as another person to talk to. Um, awesome. And then in terms of things I follow and read, I, you know, from leadership perspective, Simon Sinek's one of my, my favorites. I tend to repeat things he says on a regular basis. Um, I really have to plug in the Data Storytellers podcast as another podcast. I was I was actually been listening to that one. And I was part of that one. Um, that notion of storytelling. I think you, what's nice about it is it's different stories that people have told to get things to happen in their organizations. And so that's really, how I found you. That's how you found me. That's right. I'm like, wait, I want to meet Jane. <laughs> yeah. So that one, I would say, like every time I listen to one of those, too, you get this really interesting kind of vignette. It's usually about. 15, 20 minute like story that someone's telling about what they've done with data. So that's a really nice one. Um, and then I think in terms of conferences or things to read, um, I'm a big fan of actually Avanta has a, a data conference that they do every year that I really like. The format is smaller. You get to really talk to each other more. Um, so that's yeah, I like I that. It's just as a vendor, like we can also go to these things, but it's like yeah. not non-salesy at all. You just have no. Really Honest, it's 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 like the it's almost like it's, this podcast. It's, it's got the no no BS honest thing going on. I think it's really nice, and I love that they do have those like roundtable breakouts, so you actually you talk to each other rather than just somebody kind of talking at you. So exactly. yeah, those are all good resources cool. for for data. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Before we wrap up and say thank you, just a couple of things. Next week we have Anna Abra. Abra 
Abramova from SQL DBM. We talk about data modeling, which is one of the other big topics right now. And second, in two weeks or 10 days, actually, uh, I'm going to be at uh, Data Day Texas here in Austin. It's on January 28th on Saturday. Get a 20% discount. Just put in your name, put in my name. Wants a kid to get a 20% discount. Uh, we got, it has an amazing roster of guests all packed in one day. And even just a bunch of former guests from data, from, from Catalan Cocktails. So Shamak Degani is going to be there. Joe Rice, Bill Inman, who was our guest last week. Chad Sanderson, Jans Osman, Dave McComb. Like that's going to be a phenomenal conference. Uh, conference. I'm going to be giving a talk on show me the money. Talk about data ROI. That's my talk over there. So just use my name. Wants a kid to get twenty percent discount for that. And with that, Jane, thank you, thank you so much. As always, thanks to Data Art World who lets us do this. The Enterprise Data Catalog. Thanks for supporting us, Jane. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You have a good one. Cheers. Cheers. This is Catalog and Cocktails. A special thanks to Data.World for supporting the show, Carly Berghoff for producing, John Loyans and Brian Jacob for the show music, and thank you to the entire Catalog and Cocktails fan base.